We are reading from Romans chapter 9, which starts on page 1135 of the Church Bibles. It's Romans chapter 9, and we're reading verses 1 all the way to verse 29. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, 
unless the Lord Almighty had left, had left his descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Thanks, Hannah, for reading that. Steve, for praying for us. As Steve said, we are diving um, back into to Romans on Sunday evenings. And these next three weeks, we're going through chapters 9, 10, and 11, more or less. And they've got all sorts of, well, you, you've read it here with us. There's all sorts of things going on here. Loads to think about. Some of it's uh, tricky. But it is, it is written with pastoral and practical reasons in mind. Um, Paul, as he begins this little section, uh, talks about his emotions, about certain things that are going on. He says, I have unceasing sorrow and anguish because of a situation he finds as he looks at the world around him. But by the time we get to the end of chapter 11, it's become worship. Um, Here's theology, if you like, that is strong enough for some of the emotionally upsetting things in life but can help you face up to those robustly and still leave you worshipping and praising the God of the Bible. And the things that are unsettling for Paul, I imagine they'll be unsettling for you as well if you're a Christian because at some point if you're a Christian, I suspect you end up asking look, questions like this. Why do, why do some people become Christians? while other people don't? Why are there so few Christians at my school or my work? And there's even those times where you think, well, when, when those you might expect to become Christians don't, and then those you would never have expected in a million years to become Christians do, and it feels baffling at times, and you can begin to wonder, is God a bit limited? Um, are his plans a bit of a failure? Why are more people not Christians? Uh, in the UK, church attendance has been in significant decline. If you look at the stats, Anglican attendance, back in 1980, there was 1.37 million coming to Anglican churches on a Sunday. 2015, it was 660,000. How should we feel about that? How should we feel about people who are not Christians? Do we just write them off? And how should we feel about God? Can we worship someone who, as you look around, you begin to think, are his plans fragile? Does he not seem to be very good? If he wants to save people, does he not seem to be very good at it? And if you ever ask that, you'll get this part of the Bible tonight. We're we're coming back to these chapters, 9 to 11, and they're tackling those kind of questions. And if you get your head around what Paul is saying, it will free you. It will free you to be genuinely concerned and motivated towards people who are not Christians. To be genuinely concerned for them. Motivated in the way you act towards them. Mates at school, colleagues at work. And yet at the same time, totally convinced. God is worthy. He is worthy of our worship. Now, the sticking point for, for Paul's readers as he's writing to them was, look, why are so many of God's historic people, the Jewish nation, not Christians? Why are so many people of historic Israel, as Jesus has come, why have they not become Christians? Has God failed? 
Or was the Old Testament message wrong? Was the Old Testament wrong? Were they not really part of God's plan? Or is God just writing them off? And uh, Paul's answer back then as he writes this will shape our thinking here and now as we think about similar kinds of things. And just to get into it, look, Paul is saying, look, God really is intent on saving people from all over the world. Now, you look down to verse 24. You might not be able to read that on the screen. But he, in the end of part of his argument, he, he says this, not only from the Jews, uh, uh, yeah, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And he says, look, the Old Testament The Old Testament always spoke about this. We won't go through it in detail tonight, but you read on those final verses, verses 25 to 29. He's quoting Old Testament writers through whom God said his plan was to save people who were not part of his historic people, Israel, Gentiles. People like most of us, I assume. And also from among those historic people, Israel. That's the plan. It's right through the Bible. And then Paul says, look, come and think about the way the Bible talks about God's plan, what the Bible says about God and about people. And that's what we're going to look at for a few minutes. Now, I think if, if you know how to drive, if you've learned how to drive, after you've been driving for a while, one of the most unsettling things you can do is end up in the passenger seat with someone else driving. Do you know that feeling? Suddenly you find once you've been driving for a while and someone else is driving, you know that feeling, you think, going a bit fast, actually. Um, and you find yourself trying to glance at the speedo. Do you ever do that just, just to check? I, I think they're going a bit fast. I'm like that with my mother-in-law sometimes. I just glance at the speedo. Or maybe you're more passive-aggressive and you say something like, is this a 50? I, I, I think this is a 50, isn't it? And it's the hint of, I think you're going over that. Or are coming up to stationary traffic and they don't slow the way you think we should be slowing down. Do you find yourself pressing on imaginary brakes? Do you ever do that? In the, in the passenger seat, you find yourself just pressing on the floor in front of you as if you've got brakes there. And if it's a friend and they spot you doing it, they'll ignore it. If it's a sibling or a spouse, they'll say, you're not driving leave it. I'm driving. But the instinct is, isn't it? The instinct when you're in the passenger seat, I could drive as better. I know how to brake better. I know the braking distance. I know the speed. I could do it better. And Paul is going to say to us in these chapters, our temptation outrageously is to display that same kind of instinct When it comes to God and his saving plans for people, we have a look at what we imagine is the direction of travel and think we could drive things better. So so Paul says, look, if you're wondering, if you're wondering why not everyone seems to become Christians, and if you're thinking for a moment, is God a bit of a failure? Here's some stuff you need to know. Look, the first thing, if you want to scribble it down, is this. Look, God has always... God has always elected to save some. Verses 6 to 13. If the question was, look, lots of people of Israel have not believed in Jesus. So verse 6, what Paul says, so 
it looks like God's failed. That's what people are saying. Has God failed? And Paul's response is, not all are descended from Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And what does he mean? Well, something like this. Look, being born into the physical people of Israel didn't guarantee you'd been brought into God's family. All the way through the Bible, there was always a slightly different distinction being made. Salvation is not a birthright. It's not something you get just because you're born in a certain place in a certain time into a certain family. So verse 7, Abraham had several children. But God's plan would come through Isaac. So Paul writes in verse 8, it's not the children of physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise. Isaac married Rebekah. Verse 10, they had twin sons, Esau and Jacob. But God told Rebekah before they were born, verse 12, the older will serve the younger. Jacob's been chosen by God. He's going to get the blessing. And verse 11, we're told why. We're told why God made his plans known before they were born or, or had done anything good or bad. It was so that in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. And we need to hear this. Just, just pause on that for a moment and understand the, the flow of Paul's argument to you and what he's saying about God and about what he's done. He's telling us God freely chose one and not the other. God chose Abraham. He chose Isaac and Rebekah. He chose Jacob over Esau. God has always elected to save some. That's what the Bible says. Now I think, hear that. And I think you feel the driving instinct kick in again. You ever feel that? Gideon, we just knock it on to the next slide so we don't fall behind. Thanks. There we go. You feel the driving instinct kick in. You feel yourself wanting to put the brakes on this so-called gospel message. I'm not sure I like the way this thing's driving. God choosing some uh, and not the other. And at that point, you discover the God of the Bible turning to you and saying, you do know you're not in the driving seat. You have no access to the accelerator. You have no brake pedal to press. You have no influence over the steering wheel of my salvation plan. And you don't get to decide who I'll choose to join us on this journey. God's saving plans are not a birthright. They're a demonstration of God's sovereign choice. Now, that's what verse 8 is about. Do you know that? And do you believe that? So the Bible does. Uh, the Bible says, look, this way God works. It's, it's his choice. It's his saving plans. You don't get to influence it in that kind of way. You don't get to choose or decide it's God who does it. And the Bible says, look, that is a cause for worship. But some of us might still be at the point where we're thinking, like, I want to press the brakes a little harder because if God is just choosing, 
That's the way it works. If God is the one choosing, doesn't that make him unfair? Choosing one and not the other. Isn't he unfair? Is he even unjust in doing that? Is he capricious? Is he changeable? Is he unreliable? And Paul's anticipated the question. That's verse 14. And what then shall we say? He's imagining you and me asking this question back and his readers asking this question. What then shall we say? Is God unjust, i.e. in in saving some and not others? Is he unjust the way he does that? And the answer he gives is not at all. And the reason is something like this. Look, being saved. Being saved is not what we or anyone deserves. It's mercy. When you begin to think about God saving people, you're not to think in terms of anyone getting anything they deserve. The only way to think of it is in terms of mercy. In verse 15, he, he quotes the Old Testament again. He does it all through these chapters. He, he quotes the Old Testament. And, and this one in verse 15, it comes from Exodus 33 where, where God is speaking to Moses. And he says to him, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And it, it happened, this exchange between God and Moses happened because Moses has, had said to, to God, can I see your glory? Can I see your glory? Can I, can I see a bit more of what you're really like? God, will you show me something of what you're really like, your character in yourself? And God said, yes, I'll show you. I'll cause my goodness to pass in front of you and I'll say my name, the promise-making Lord before you. And then he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. It's not the only thing he says in this exchange. But Paul wants to land us here. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. What is God like? What is his character? In that encounter, he declares... He declares his absolute sovereign freedom to show mercy to whoever he wants. Compelled by no one outside of himself. God stands alone. He is not pushed or pulled by any external force outside of himself. I don't know if you know, we sometimes sing a song here at Christchurch that it's a wonderful song, but it has a line in it that I sometimes struggle a little bit with it. It has a line in it that says, you didn't want heaven without us, so you brought heaven down. And there's a way that that's right. But we want to be clear with that song about what we can't mean. We, we can't mean that for God, the thought of losing us was going to leave him feeling that he was missing out in some way that he needed something else beyond himself. So he felt compelled by something external into needing to save some of us. No, it's not like that. And God wasn't compelled to save, but he, he graciously acts in accordance with his own character and nature, and in that shows mercy to those whom he chooses. That's what God does. But the need for mercy, it also alerts us to something about people. It's what Paul has said earlier in Romans. If you want to go back, you can read it. It's been a while since we've gone through the early chapters. But right back in Romans 3, verse 10, Paul describes people this way. He says, look, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. You know that about yourself, don't you? 
I have to keep remembering, I have to keep reminding myself that this is the way the Bible describes me, this is what I'm like. I wasn't anyone who's looking for God. I turned away from him. There's some of us, and you'll know others, even if it's not you, there's some who struggle with a poor self-image of themselves. It can be caused by all sorts of things. It can be caused by poor relationships, caused by terrible things said by people who are cruel, who just want to control and it can leave us, it can leave us with all sorts of things in, in the way we think about ourselves and about life. And it can, it can make it hard for some to function in life in ways that seem to be easier for others. And the way people speak and, and put you down and say all sorts of cruel things, it can have a big impact on us like that. And we need to help those who struggle that way. But what the Bible is talking about here is something of a different order. It's not cruelly trying to keep some of us down. This is a universal condition. And at times you don't spot it or could even forget about it. Those who have this condition, and everyone has it, can sometimes function in, in confident and remarkable ways. They don't feel pretty crushed about themselves. They can function in all sorts of remarkable ways, except the most important and that is how they relate to God. We turn from him in his world. We reject him. That was true for me. It was true for me, if you like, from birth. See, I put myself in the driving seat. It wasn't, I wasn't that bad. If you'd known me when I was 15 or 16, I wasn't a bad lad in all sorts of ways. When you compared me with other people around I was all right. I came home when my parents told me to come home. I kind of did the right thing. I wasn't that bad when you compared me with others, but I was, I was always heading away from God. I put myself in the driving seat. I was making the decisions about the way I should live. But then he saved me. That's what the Bible said. While I was, while I was going in a different direction, when I was going away from God, not looking for him, God reached out through the Lord Jesus and saved me. Not because I was looking for him, but because he came looking for me. And being saved, though, yet sometimes I still come to God with a kind of indignant question. God, I don't think I like the way you're driving this saving plan. Why do you save some and not others? And at that point, the Bible comes and says, look, back in your seat, David. Back in your seat, you're not driving this. And you're asking the wrong question. The question is not, the question is not, why does God save some and not others? No, the real question is, why would a holy, sovereign, and totally free God save anyone at all? That's the question we should ask. Why would a God who is perfect in all his ways who is holy and sovereign, he's unconstrained with anything and confronted with, look, confronted with anyone who has offended him the way I've offended him. Someone like me who from the start of my life has pushed against him, been ungrateful and unkind, spoken and acted in arrogant ways, why would he save someone like me? And you begin to ask that question and the answer the Bible gives gives is because against all hope he has chosen in his sovereign freedom to be merciful that's the only reason and because it's mercy like Jacob and Esau he chose 
He chose people like me and people like you, not because of anything good or bad that we've done, because we all deserve judgment. So that can't be the basis of it. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine for a moment, if, if the reason you were a Christian, if the reason you were someone who's going to be saved is because God looked at you and thought you were a bit better than someone else, or even because he thought, well, you're a bit more spiritually receptive. If the reason that you were a Christian is, is because you were a bit more tuned into spiritual things, and that's the reason you responded. If that were the case, then the reason you'd be in God's family would be because of you, in part, because you were a good person, because you were a bit more spiritual, and in some sense, you'd be in, you'd be in the driving seat. You'd be in the driving seat when it came to being saved, or at least helping to drive. But that's not the way things are. You and me were a car crash waiting to happen. No, actually, you and me were a car crash that had already happened. But then God saved us. Augustus Top Ladies hymn, Rock of Ages. Uh, you might know it. I think it's the second verse. It goes like this. It's on the screen. And not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All the things that I could do, he says, if I could do all sorts of things, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Top lady understood it. Being saved is not a birthright. It's certainly not something we deserve. No, being saved is an act of sovereign mercy. So how does that free us? You begin to think about these things. If, if God has always chosen to save some, and if none of us deserve to be saved, it's just God's mercy. Well, how does that free us, really, to care for those who are not Christians and, and steady us to trust and worship the God of the Bible? Well, Here's a couple of thoughts just as we finish. Back in verse 1 of chapter 9, if you just turn back to it there for a moment. Paul began this way. He says, I, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in, through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people. You begin to understand what Paul's saying. Look, his perspective on people is not that they're hard done to by God. But they've turned from him and are in need of his mercy. And it produces a deep concern. It produces a deep concern to the point, well, to the point where he knows that all he wants to do is point them to the only hope there is. Hearing about that, uh, hearing about what God offers in Jesus. And hoping through God's mercy that you might respond to him. Understanding the real situation. Understanding the real situation we were in and everybody's in. If you listen to Paul, doesn't make us want to write them off. Or think of ourselves as better. No, it should produce a deep concern that others might hear about the Lord Jesus. That's somewhere to start. Is he come and pray this week? Come and pray for friends who don't know about the Lord Jesus. And knowing that to undeserving people, God has chosen to show undeserved mercy. It should lead us to worship.
See, if you're a Christian, that's what you've received. We might not always understand why, why God saves some and not others, but it's not a failure on his part. Be grateful for his mercy. For his mercy shown to you. For any mercy, being here as a Christian, being part of a church family here, it's an act of God's mercy. And it's good to know that he's in the driving seat and not us. And it's good to know that he shows mercy, even to those who don't deserve it. I suppose a final thing just to say before we, we wrap this up and Steve leads us on in the service is to say, look, it's what to do if you were here and you're thinking, you know what, I'm not sure I am a Christian yet. I'm not sure I do know this God and I might want to. I remember talking with a young guy once about becoming a Christian and he said something like this, do you know what, I think I'll decide later. And Paul would say here, look, it doesn't quite work that way. You're not in the driving seat. It's not just down to you to decide whether you'll become a Christian or not. It is God's choice. So what you might hope for, if that's you tonight, is that hearing these words, that God is merciful, that he is extending mercy to you and saying, come and trust Jesus. And if you hearing that tonight think yes, well then ask him for the forgiveness you need to bring you into God's family and to live life from now on with him in the driving seat. No one deserves to be saved, but in the kindness and wisdom of God, he has always chosen to save some. So ask him for his saving mercy. Let's have a moment of quiet, and then Steve will lead us.